Blessed is the man who walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is on the law of the Lord, and on his law doth he meditate day and night. And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water, that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. Welcome to the Bread of the Word podcast, a podcast striving to feast on God's Word and let the Bible speak to us all. Let us, as a former generation said, go ad fontes to the fountain and be nourished and sustained by all that God is. Let's dig in together. Well, hello and welcome back to the Bread of the Word podcast, where we go ad fontes to the fountain, to the Word of God, to be nourished and sustained by all that God is, as he has revealed himself to us. My name is Tyler, I'm your host, and we are continuing our trek in the Song of Solomon. We have finally cleared chapter one. We've been very going very slowly, and I'm not going to lie, this is a challenging book. If anyone claims to have this whole book worked out, run. Um, I'm of the persuasion that if they if somebody claims to have any book of the Bible mastered, run. If they say if somebody says they've mastered the book of Genesis, run. This as a whole is a hard book, and and all of these little books in it are hard. They they are they challenge us. They they don't make sense with carnal eyes. They have to be discerned with the eyes of the spirit, and so the Song of Solomon is no exception. This book is rough. Between the imagery and and the poetry and the allegory, this is not an easy book. It's not just a book. These are the words of God. And that means that I can't read it like any other book. And so often with pouring over these passages, I'm sitting here going, what is this? I don't know. And so um, thank you for continuing to tune in as we puzzle through this together. And with all that said, let us read today's portion of chapter 2, and we will continue to grapple with this song of songs. It says, I am a wildflower of Sharon, a lily of the valleys. Like a lily among thorns, so is my darling among the young women. Like an apricot tree among the trees of the forest, so is my love among the young men. I delight to sit in his shade, and his fruit is sweet to my taste. He brought me to the banquet hall, and he looked on me with love. Sustain me with raisins, refresh me with apricots, for I am lovesick. May his left hand be under my head, and his right arm embrace me. Young women of Jerusalem, I charge you by the gazelles and the wild does of the field. Do not stir up or awaken love until the appropriate time. So, again, we've got some interesting language here. Um, a couple weeks ago, we had the beginnings of some of that um, um, language we're not sure what to do with in the 21st century. Um, so, l- let's just dig in. 
So it begins with, I am a wildflower of Sharon, a lily of the valleys. And one of the challenges with this book is that we have a change in speakers, um, but the Hebrew does not necessarily notate that. There's not like different headings. Um, a lot of modern Bibles will have headings. You know, like I've got the, the CSB right here, and so it has headings for the man and the woman. But my King James does not do that. And so the reason the these modern translations do is because they are identifying changes in the gender of words in the Hebrew. And they're trying to reflect that in English because we don't have gendered words in English. And so there, there's a bit of a challenge there. But um, this, this line, I am a wildflower of Sharon, a lily of the valleys, is attributed to the woman in most um, English Bibles. However, one of the things about the way God speaks is sometimes he says things that are true about himself and his people. In, in the same way that he says, I am the light of the world, and then also says, you are the light of the world. That There are times where what is true in God is also true in his people. Now, I believe this is an example of that. I am a wildflower of Sharon, a lily of the valleys that there is a what's being conveyed here is this picture of beauty and the flowers we, we were talking about flowers a couple of weeks ago with this idea of beauty as being an objective reality that is tied to god that beauty is an attribute of god and for us to truly appreciate beauty is to appreciate the god from which it comes but the woman who is the church the the typified church in this is a lily of the valleys. And we know this because Christ is also considered the lily of the valleys. That this is who she comes from. Verse 2, Like a lily among thorns, says the man, so is my darling among the young women. A lily among thorns. That is a bit of a comparison. See, flowers and thorns, we don't usually like to think of those being together. Um, you, we know the phrase, every rose has its thorns, but to have a flower in the midst of thorns seems a bit of a contradiction. Because lilies don't have thorns. And to put beautiful flowers in the midst of thorns seems like a strange idea. But nonetheless, this is how the man who is Christ sees his 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 wife sees the woman as a lily among thorns and that idea of thorns there's a number of places we could go to consider this um genesis 3:17 says thorns and thistles um are a part of the curse if we just flip back here i'm going off book i don't have any notes today um it is just the text and so genesis 3:17 which we've just read um, in, in Genesis 3.15, that um, um, your seed shall crush the head of the serpent, you shall bite his head, and you shall strike his... Uh, he shall crush your head, and you shall strike his heel. And when we get to 17, and God turns to Adam, and these are the consequences on Adam for his sin. And it says, Because you listened to your wife, 
then ate from the tree about which I commanded you, do not eat from it. The ground is cursed because of you. You will eat from it by means of painful labor all the days of your life. Which is a... Not as poetic as some of the other translations put it. By the sweat of your brow you shall eat bread. Um, but it will produce thorns and thistles for you. And you will eat the plants of the field. You will eat bread by the sweat of your brow. That is... That's part of the curse. That, that when sin entered the world through Adam, everything changed. And th and the thorns and the thistles are part of an illustration of that. It's It's almost poetry. There's something almost poetic about it, that the thorns are a testament to we live in a fallen world. Something is not right about this world because of sin. That the thorns and the thistles um, are... Ultimately, they're showing us the need for redemption. That they are testifying that the world is broken by sin. Not by mistakes, by sin. So, the people of God are likened in this text as a lily among thorns who are in this fallen world but are not of this fallen world. There is something substantially different between the lily and the thorns. Second Corinthians 5.17 says that if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. The old has passed away. And the new has come. We are a lily among thorns. So is my darling among the young women. That this is the second line of the parallel. Alright, so Hebrew poetry works in sets of two. So you'll have a line and you'll have a second line. And they relate to each other in some way. And here, um, he explains the illustration a different way. Like a lily among thorns, so is my darling among the young women. Meaning he has eyes for one. He has eyes for one, and that is his bride, the church. Verse 3 is the voice of the woman. And it says, like an apricot tree among the trees of the forest, so is my love among the young men. Now... We have a similar illustration as in the previous verse, like a lily among thorns, like an apricot tree in the forest. That's not necessarily where you would find an apricot tree. It is every bit as out of place as a lily among thorns. So is my love among the young men. I delight to sit in his shade, and his fruit is sweet to my taste. So she goes a step further beyond, so is my love among the young men, in, in comparison with the other gods. Quote, unquote, he is like an apricot tree among the forest. Among pine trees and you know, forest trees that don't grow fruit, you have an apricot tree that does. And so the false gods of Canaan did not grow fruit. That's part of the illustration here, is they did not bear fruit. They are broken cisterns that hold no water. To use another illustration, this is, this is a strong comparison here. 
It says that she delights to sit in his shade. What shade? Under the tree. And this is language we saw a couple weeks ago in chapter 1 when she was talking about going to the, the flocks of, her, of his companions. Where do you pasture your sheep? Where do you let them rest at noon? Why should I be like one who veils herself beside the flocks of your companions? And the imagery there was that around noon, um, the shepherds would go and, and they would take their sheep into the shade and they would lie under trees because it was, it was too hot to work. And so the question she's asking is, do I take the form of a harlot? Because it was very common practice for um, certain individuals to go and proposition the shepherds. And so do I take the, the form of a harlot and go to these other shepherds because I cannot find this one? But here, they are united. This is one of the remarkable things about chapter 2, is chapter 1, they are apart. And she is pining for his, his communion, for being united with her love. But chapter 2, they are together. I delight to sit in his shade, and his fruit is sweet to my taste. That This is a picture of, of union and communion, of being united with the husband, but also in sharing something with him. And this is a beautiful picture of what we have in Christ. You, know, you, you read enough um, lofty theological concepts, and you'll hear words like unity with Christ. And that's just, ultimately what that is, is that is the blessings that we have as people who are in Christ, as people who have been reconciled to God. There are certain benefits, there are certain blessings that we share with Christ because they are part of his character, a part of his nature. They are part of who he is. It says in the Psalms, taste and see that the Lord is good. Joyful are those who take refuge in him. Just as the woman delights to take refuge from the sun in the shade of the apricot tree that is Christ, so we also delight to sit in the shade of the sun who is Christ. And so he shares here is something of himself with us. And we call that communion. Verse 4, he brought me to the banquet hall, and he looked on me with love. And this is one of those spots where the certain modern English translations don't quite do it justice. Because the way the King James renders it is he brought me to the banquet hall, and his banner over me was love. The King James tries to preserve that poetic image. His banner over me was love. While as the CSB says, he looked on me with love. It doesn't, it doesn't, it interprets the poetry for you. But that's, that's battle language. That is, that's a military concept of banner. That, we're talking about war here. In a love poem. Why? 
because, as Spurgeon once put it, how delightful it is to feel that it is not now the banner of war, but the banner of love that waves above our heads. For all is peace between us and our God. To have a banner of love over us is to be regarded as something but an enemy. To be regarded as something else, to be counted as something else. To be declared as righteous. And it's only through the work of Christ. Flip over to Romans 1. And Paul, um, at the beginning of his letter, says, For I am not ashamed of the evangelion, of the gospel, because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. And that word righteous that we read here is not one who is righteous will live by faith, but one who is counted as righteous, one who is declared as righteous. The, the word is dikaiosin. And I try not to throw out too much Greek and Hebrew in here, but I just love that word. We are counted as righteous according to the merits of Christ who is our righteousness. Christ was righteous so that we don't have to be, because we can't be righteous. We cannot meet the standard of God's righteousness, because the standard is perfection. That is the minimum standard, is complete and total perfection. We can't do that. We were never able to do that after the fall. From the moment that Adam and Eve left the garden, their ability to be right with God lied entirely outside of them. They could not come to God as anything but a sinful wretch. Which is why God promised that through their seed, through the seed of the woman, the serpent's head would be crushed. She doesn't have a seed. Just basic biology here. Woman doesn't have a seed. Eve doesn't have a seed. But she is given a seed. Without sounding weird, God provided the seed. In the same way that he provided the ram for Abraham. He provided the seed. The means by which the serpent was subdued was provided of God. As it says in the Apostles' Creed, he was conceived, being Christ, he was conceived of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. It is outside of her. It is outside of us, the means by which we are saved. <clears throat> and so when, when we are under the banner of love, it is not because of our own merit. It's not because of our own doing. It is because of the merits of Christ. Because the Lord is a man of war, says in Exodus. El Shaddai is his name. 
but he brought me to the banquet hall, and he looked on me with love. His banner over me was love. The fancy word for that is imputation. It's the transferring of Christ's righteousness to our account, that we are counted as being righteous because of Christ, not because of ourselves. And so how do we respond to that? How does the woman respond to this, to being brought into the banquet hall, being brought into the house of wine, as the text literally means? How does she respond to being brought into the places of God? Sustain me with raisins, refresh me with apricots, for I am lovesick. Other translations say, for I am sick with love. What do we do with that? This is, again, this is weird language. Um, sustain me, refresh me. Who is she speaking to? She is speaking to Christ. Sustain me, refresh me. In other words, let me abide with him. I'm the vine. You are the branches. If any if anyone abides in me and I in him, he shall bear much fruit. But any branch that does not bear fruit, he taketh away. This is a picture of being bookended in a place of dependence on God. Sustain me, refresh me. We see the same language in the Psalms. I laid down and sleep and slept. And I awoke again because the Lord sustained me. That's Psalm three. Psalm forty two says, As the deer longs for flowing streams, so I long for you, O God. <clears throat> is this the attitude of our hearts? Are we sick and weak? Are we out of our own strength, completely dependent on Christ to feed us? Are we? Psalm 23, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. That's a way that's one way to start a poem. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. I shall not suffer want. In other words, I have everything I need because the Lord is my shepherd. I I have everything I need because there is a shepherd. Because of the shepherd. That's a state of dependence we do not always know in the United States of America. In the age of the American dream of American independence and self-sufficiency, where we see everything within the lens of being a CEO, of being successful, of being on top of things, of, quote, getting ahead in life. And I've seen Christian books with that, that tagline, getting ahead in life. But the thing we call the Christian life is not about getting ahead. 
If anything, it's about getting under. Getting under the lordship of God. Because we are weak. We are not self-sufficient. Autonomy, myth. God will do what he wants to do. And we can either submit to that or not. But regardless, God will do what he does. And so the cry of our hearts ought to be, as the woman, sustain me with raisins, refresh me with apricots. Let me abide in him. For I am sick and weak and lowly. Verse 6, may his left hand be under my head and his right arm embrace me. May we know intimacy with him. Not just intellectual head knowledge, but that we would know him deeply as we talked about in the very beginning of the series with Yadab. Um, with this idea of love, it comes from the idea of knowing someone. That to love someone is to know them. May we know God in this way. Not because we're worth knowing in that way. Not because we're worth loving. But because he is. If thou shouldst markest iniquities, O Lord, who shall stand? But there is forgiveness with thee, that thou mayest be feared. And we don't like talking about fearing God anymore. But to fear God, as it says in Psalms and Proverbs and even Ecclesiastes, to fear God is to recognize God as God. To, to recognize him for who he is. Rather than putting him in my own little little box, my own little comfortable idea of what he is, my own little definition, God is God. Whether I like it or not, whether Jonah liked it or not, God had freedom to be God. And he didn't like that. Why would you save the Ninevites? I didn't want you to. God had freedom to do what he willed. And surprise, surprise, the will of God was not the will of Jonah. But, while it wasn't our will either, God has become near to us. He has drawn us to himself if we are in Christ. Um, Hosea chapter 14. Verse 4 says, I will heal their apostasy. That is a strong word. That is not a word that gets thrown around in the Old Testament. I will heal their apostasy. I will freely love them. Why? For my anger has turned from them. 
I will be like the dew to Israel. He will blossom like the lily, and take roots like the cedars of Lebanon. His new branches will spread, and his splendor will be like the olive tree, his fragrance like the forest of Lebanon. The people will return and live beneath his shade. We saw that imagery in Song of Solomon. <clears throat> They will grow grain and blossom like the vine. His renown, the Lord's renown, will be like the wine of Lebanon. Ephraim, why would I have anything more to do with idols? It is I who answer and watch over him. I am like a flourishing pine tree. Your fruit comes from me. Let whoever is wise understand these things, and whoever is insightful recognize them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the rebellious walk in them. The righteous walk in them, but the rebellious stumble in them. Spurgeon put, I said that, when God says, I will, we can depend on him to do what he says he will. But God, the Almighty King, whose last word is a sovereign mandate, says, I will heal their apostasy. I will freely love them. The love of God is different from the love of people in so many ways. Because the Bible says that we are dead in sin, that we are in bondage to sin, that we were foreigners and strangers. That we did not know God, that we were haters of God. That in us, the wrath of God did abide. That we were storing up wrath for the coming day of judgment. But Christ has said, come with me to the banquet hall. You prepare at the table before me in the presence of mine enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of God forever. This is a gift. This is the work of God doing what we could not do, what we didn't necessarily want him to do. Because we were happy in our sins. We were fine there. But God broke down the doors and said, Come with me. Come unto me, and I'll give you rest. So we have been called into something else, something different. We have been called into to be enveloped in the love of God, which is rooted in dependence on him. And verse 7, Young women of Jerusalem, I charge you, by the gazelles and the wild does of the field, do not stir up or awaken love until the appropriate time. So, <clears throat> I charge you by the gazelles and the wild does of the field. That is a that is a strange phrase. Uh, 
Um, we have this idea of being provoked. And gazelles and wild does are very provocable animals. These are animals that are very acute in their sense of hearing, in their sense of possible danger. They, they run at the sight of trouble. I've talked with guys that when they go hunting, they can't even bring their keys with them because that metallic sound in their pocket will scare off a deer. So they have to find creative ways to carry their keys so that they don't jingle in their pockets because they are such a flighty creature, gazelles and does. Do not stir up or awaken love until the appropriate time. Do not stir up or awaken love. Well, who is the object of the woman's love? It's Christ. So who are we talking about stirring up? Christ. So what does it mean to not to disturb Christ? What do we do with that? Do not stir or awaken love. Do not stir or awaken Christ. Consider the, the letters to the seven churches. We are coming to a close. Revelation 3.19, As many as I love, I rebuke and discipline, so be zealous and repent. See, I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. This was a church that had problems. God says, I know your works that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. <coughs> because you are lukewarm, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. He's not playing around with sin and death in the church with having a reputation for being alive but being dead. And so when he knocks on the door of the church, we usually take that um, a lot of times as an invitation to the gospel. He's knocking on the door of the church. I stand at the door and knock. This isn't about the gospel. This is about a church that is not in Christ, that does not have that communion and union with Christ. 
It is a Christless church. And what does he do with Christless church? What does he do with people outside of him? There is judgment. Psalm 2 says he will rule them with an iron scepter and he will shatter them like pottery. And so the, the idea of stirring up Christ, of disturbing Christ, is when we do not fear God, when we do not act like he is God, when we, we sin, willful disobedience. Because there is a coming time. There is a judgment day. I believe that's what this verse is referring to. There is an appointed time when all will be brought to light. Ecclesiastes closes with an exhortation of that reality. For God will bring every act to judgment, including every hidden thing, whether good or evil. It says in Hebrews that it is appointed unto all men to die once, and then comes the judgment. One, one phrase that I've become fond of throwing around is memento mori, memento vitae, which is Latin. But it means remember you must die. Remember you must live. You must die either in Christ or in Adam. And you must live either in Christ or in Adam. Either you will live and die in the banquet hall under the banner of God's love, or you will die or you will live and die on the outside under the banner of war. Psalm 2. Um, says, why does the heathen rage? Why does why do the why do they imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves against the Lord and his anointed, who is Christ, his Messiah. They say, let us break our bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. What does the text say? The Lord shall have them in derision. Those who will not be bound to God will not have a happy ending. The Lord shall have them in derision. Then shall he speak to them in his wrath and vex them in his sore displeasure. I will declare the decree that the Lord hath said unto me, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Speaking of Christ, the anointed king of his people. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them as a potter's vessel. <clears throat> Outside of Christ, that is where we are, is under the rod. When a nation does not honor God, it is a nation under the rod. And in many cases, in many ways, you might make the case that is, that is where many of us are living right now, is one nation under the rod. <clears throat> but the beauty of the gospel is that people who were under the rod have been brought into the banquet hall under a banner of love 
they have been brought to his table, and they eat, not as a not not just as a guest, but as family. You prepare a, a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. We eat at a table we didn't prepare. We eat at a table we didn't contribute to. Because Christ did it all. Christ has done all the work necessary to bring us to him. All that we have to do, though it is no small thing, is turn to the face of Christ, to seek the Lord while he may be found. To repent and believe that Jesus Christ is Lord of heaven and earth. <clears throat> that he was conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. That on the third day he rose again from the dead, that he ascended into heaven, and now sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Wherefore he shall judge the quick and the dead, the spiritually living and the spiritually dead. My advice to you today is run to Christ. Take refuge in Christ under the shade of the apricot tree, among the trees of the forest. Take refuge in Christ today. Psalm 2 ends with, Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. Thank you for listening. This has been the Bread of the Word podcast. Bread of the Word is a podcast ministry striving to feed people the wonderful words of God, book by book, chapter by chapter, and verse by verse, striving to let the word speak for itself. This ministry is also a member of the Truth and Love Network, a diverse fellowship of fellow podcasts of different theological backgrounds united in the gospel of God. For more from the Bread of the Word podcast or the Truth and Love Network, check out the links below and follow us on social media. Until next time, God bless, Matthew 4.4.